electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money, and welcome to a special San Francisco edition of Kramerica. Other people make friends, I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just entertainment, that's get teachers, so call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Right, we love coming out here. We love coming out to California to find out what we're missing back in New York. Every time we do it, I make a point of speaking to at least 20 CEOs. Some of that is because I'm completely crazy, because it's my job, though, to explain to you what's happening. So first, I need to know what's happening myself. It's discipline and it's rigor. And it's always better to be informed than to be ignorant, because in this business, information, not ignorance, is bliss. I know it's going to be hard for some of my Twitter followers, but it does... Bear with me. At the conclusion of four brutal days that coincided with Salesforce's Dreamforce Festival, the Dow sinking 107 points, the S&P losing 0.84%, and the stupid NASDAQ tumbling another 1.37%. What have we learned here? All right, let me go over my findings and put them in the context of events away from tech. First, I made a point of asking everyone, I mean everyone, whether they were having any trouble attracting talent to work at their enterprises. I got a very unified answer. Absolutely not. I mean, like, just plain no. Unlike last year, where there was brutal competition for workers, now they can find people easily, both in sales and in software development. And by the way, in service, if you're talking even about a restaurant. This kind of shocked me because last year, coming out of the pandemic, good salespeople were incredibly hard to find, and unemployed computer scientists were practically an endangered species. Now, now, the whole dynamic has reversed out here, and there is genuine fear of joblessness. Some people I spoke to at a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert, see, I remember that name, uh, weren't just worried about their jobs. They were actually worried about their companies. I was worried that I didn't know the lyrics. Others wanted my help finding work. Man, it's late when you're asking me for help finding work. Anyway, what a difference less than a year makes. Now, this morning on Squawk on the Street, David and Carl asked me if I was concerned that Fed Chief Jay Powell doesn't know all of this, and he might press too hard against a severely weakened economy. I said, absolutely not. I don't want anyone to lose their job, 
But I know the Fed needs to stamp out inflation, especially wage inflation. And at least out here in Silicon Valley, that process is playing out exactly how Powell wants it. What's bizarre is that if we do go into a recession, the epicenter will be here in San Francisco, where so many new companies have been created, creating too much demand for labor, demand that's now vanishing rapidly. Second, there's an overriding sense of indispensability of these products, or at least claimed indispensability, a belief in the necessity of their own technology. Almost everyone has a story of why their product will have to be bought by customers, because the clients will have no choice if they don't want to be left behind versus their competition. I want to give these guys the benefit of the doubt, but in almost every single case, I believe the indispensability thesis is exaggerated. For example... It is better to be in the cloud than in old-fashioned on-premises systems. Everybody knows that, right? But no, you're not going to go out of business if you don't make the switch. As for the companies that help get you on the cloud or make it better, I think their clients could easily defer making that move, maybe even by a year, maybe two, because there's a real cost to migrating now. For a company I helped found, it cost $2 million to make the switch to the cloud from on-prem, which wrecked the quarter, and the analysts didn't understand the necessity, and the stock almost got cut in half. It seems indispensable until, well, um, it, it isn't because business is so bad. Sure, I saw companies making chips for self-driving cars, and we know that's the future. But what happens if it's a distant future, not something near-term? It can be deferred. Anything that's in test mode simply won't make you a lot of money. It's a deadweight loss. It could cost you a lot of money. And few companies want to spend that kind of cash in a bad economy. They're frozen. Some companies are still tainted from COVID. They had businesses that over-earned during the depths of the pandemic, like the gaming companies, which peaked as the world went back to normal. This was hard to tell at the time because we didn't realize how quickly our country would morph from a goods and services economy to a mostly service with far fewer goods economy because we wanted to go places. This is what I call the nine wedding thesis. They got nine weddings to go to that were deferred. So the pendulum, pendulum has gone from solid growth in gaming to an actual retreat in gaming which has been very tough on chipmakers like AMD and NVIDIA. At the same time, though, genuine indispensability doesn't seem to matter. Skyworks Solutions came here. They make chips that are essential to cell phones. Marvell is essential to high-performance computing and 5G. Yeah, nobody cares. Now, how about that? How do we explain that? Because their stocks trade in lockstep with the semiconductor sector, thanks in large part to the proliferation of these sector-based ETFs that the brokers love so much. You can have great news from an individual company like we're seeing from Marvell, and I know it is great news, or from Skyworks. And you know what it means? Nothing. These fantastic growth stocks sell at ever-shrinking price earnings multiples because they're the best houses and bad neighbors, and no one cares about anything in the neighborhood. The same goes for many of the cloud companies. Some of them are doing just fine, but they'll never get the credit they deserve in this environment because the whole group has gone out of style. I also learned this week that if there's any true indispensability out there, it comes from the abundant talent pool located here. I managed to pull up as kind of a great honor with Mark Tessier-Levine. He's the president of Stanford. And we chatted about what makes the best of the best go out here to Stanford. A big change versus when I was coming out of high school. He talked about the fun of learning, the great experience, the joy of the campus. I know sometimes people think that's par for the course in higher ed these days, but we never heard any of this stuff when I went to Harvard in the 70s. When we went to the new research hub of Johnson Johnson earlier this week, it was quite evident there's a ton of tremendous talent coming out of both Stanford and UCSF as well as other schools. It's an insanely good research institution at UCSF. I love it. Nothing the Fed can do. Nothing can change that. Thank heavens. Hey, speaking of failures, another lesson. As much as Jay Powell can impact all these companies negatively, and he can, 
The best ones have the ability to reinvent themselves on the fly. Salesforce.com, the host of Dreamforce, is probably the best example. For the longest time, Salesforce grew, often aided by expensive acquisitions that only did pay off. Yesterday, though, co-CEO Brett Taylor told me that the focus was profitable growth and returning capital to shareholders. Holy cow! Company raised its growth forecast, reiterated its target of $50 billion in revenue by fiscal year 2026, despite now having an additional $2 billion in foreign exchange headwinds, and also committed to returning 30 to 40% of the company's bountiful free cash flow. So the $10 million buyback that the company announced in August, its first ever, might be the first of many such programs. What a change! If you've been selling the stock of Salesforce, it tells me, hey, maybe you ought to rethink what could be an ill-advised strategy. Look, we are in a tough moment. I have not denied that from day one. As I've said multiple times, although almost no one seems to believe me, the Fed wants the price of all assets down, including your homes and your portfolios. J-Pal can only do that by making it more expensive to borrow money. That's exactly what he's doing. Bottom line, while some of these tech companies have business lines that may be somewhat immunized against higher borrowing costs, they are few and far between out here, regardless of what people might say about their own indispensability. Terrific companies, great products, but not as much immunity from the hardship as many of these CEOs seem to think. All right, let's take calls. Let's go to Jackson in Illinois. Jackson. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. With heightened geopolitical tensions, what is your outlook on Raytheon Technologies? I'm going to see you and raise you one better. I think Raytheon and Lockheed are both fantastic. This, these are these stories right now because we can't make enough weapons and we need to give the weapons to other countries. So this is one of the few bull markets out there. I always end the show by saying there's always a bull market somewhere. It's in defense. Eric in Tennessee. Eric. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, thank you, Eric. Uh, my question is in regard to Dick Sporting Goods, ticker DKS. I currently own shares of this company and have really liked the management and fundamentals of the stock for some time. The stock has been in an upward trend since June 16th of this year. Right. Looking at the three-year chart, it looks like the stock might be even setting up for uh, the last leg of a reverse head and shoulders pattern which tends to be bullish. And I see I that like- too and Eric, I've got to tell you I think Laura the main thing that I know Lauren Hobart that was maybe one of the three or four best research calls that we've had in retail this year. That last quarter was monster good. I applaud you for finding that stock, and I want you to stick with it at nine times earnings. All right. While some of these tech companies have business lines that might be somewhat immunized against higher borrowing costs in a slowing economy, they are few and far between, even though they hope that's not the case. Oh, made money tonight. After Salesforce completed its acquisition of Slack last year, where does the company stand in its integration? I'm checking in with Slack's co-founder and CEO. Then inflation remains high. But what could history tell us about what's on the horizon? It is shocking. And we're going off the charts to find out. And Spunk stock has been a funk of late like many others. So have investors spotted an opportunity or do they need to steer clear for now? I'm talking to the company's top brands. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere, you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As we wrap up our coverage of Salesforce's annual Dreamforce conference, got to take a closer look at a business they bought last year. Probably like it if you're on it. It's called Slack, a popular business collaboration platform. They, they, they spent $27.7 billion for this asset. And since the deal closed, they've worked hard to integrate Slack's technology into all of their core platforms. The idea is to bring in everybody relevant to selling a product or service so they can all congregate together on Slack and work to give their customers the best experience possible. Good idea in theory. How's it play out in practice? Let's check in with Stuart Butterfield, the co-founder and CEO of Slack, now a division of Salesforce. Mr. Butterfield, welcome back to Man Money. Thank you for having me, Jim. All right, Stuart, when I met you the first time, I was all fired up because I'm a big user of the product. It seems like now it's a combination of it can be lead gen. That's not an insult. Nope. But it also seems to become the de facto non-teams way for mm-hmm. people to coordinate. And this has happened incredibly fast from the first time I met you. Yes, we're over 200,000 customers now, and um, whether that's SMBs around the world, some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, we've had five consecutive quarters of 40% plus growth and 100,000 plus customers. Obviously, you know, there's a little bit of a tailwind that comes from Salesforce, but there's also a cost to the integration. So I think there's more upside to come in this combination. Well, Brett Taylor, co-CEO, made it clear to me that the acquisition has already paid off. Gross margins are higher. Did not interfere one bit with the target if any, of the $50 billion. If anything, yeah. it's integral to reaching the $50 billion. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to take too much credit for that because obviously the, it's, Salesforce has been on a 20-plus year run of just like kind of amazing top-line growth to yeah. $31 billion this year. You know, it's 
past SAP coming in on Oracle, and Oracle's got a 20-year head start. So, like, there's nothing else, no one else has ever accomplished that. Um, I think we'll contribute, but it's uh, obviously there's a big effort. Okay, so you introduced a couple of products, yet uh, we know some people are already using some Slack Canvas, mm-hmm. and, and we've got Huddle. Uh, I want people to understand that a conference like Dreamforce, which I know Mark would say he'd hate the term conference, mm-hmm. because it's much more than that. Festival. You get this a festival. <laughs> You get to show off these products where there are people who are wowed and people who say, you know what, I've got to get off my current system and move to your system. Yeah, and I met with uh, customer after customer after customer yesterday. It is quite an impressive machine um, that we've got here. And uh, there's a lot of excitement. And if you'll indulge me for just a second. Let's do the thought experiment. I invited you on, so consider yourself indulged. Thanks. Uh, Go back to March of 2020, parallel universe, like speculative fiction. We could all keep going to the office, commute, use conference rooms, business travel, but you took away the software, every large enterprise would have just disintegrated. Like They would have lasted 24 hours or something like that. The, the reality was we took away the offices and people continued. So uh, this is not a militant anti-office position at all, but it is um, a recognition of the importance of that digital infrastructure that supports productivity and collaboration, which at some point in the last... 30 years or something like that, really inverted the importance of the physical HQ and the, and the digital. Um, so I think what we're starting to see with customers is a real realization of like, aha, the, you know, there's a lot more possibilities. It's much easier to reconfigure a, a, a digital HQ than a, than a physical one and kind of reimagine how work gets done, organizational design, process, workflow, everything. Well, look, work, work from home, uh, work from anywhere would be made up for Slack. I mean, it really was. I mean, because I know you from when it's an independent company, mm-hmm. and you're not some greedy son of a gun type of thing, but the fact is is that this, this business, if it weren't for the bear market, is worth a lot more now than mm-hmm. it was then. Uh, did you ever think that there could be uh, a world where people are out, like Salesforce, two, three days, to even being criticized that they're not coming in enough by the by local townspeople, um, that it, this would be the ideal thing, that this is the way that people communicate? Yeah, I mean, honestly, we're Slack, uh, and we were one and a half or two percent remote work before the pandemic. And if you would ask me in February of 2020, could you just switch the whole company to working from home like that and maintain the same levels of productivity? I would have said no, gotta be honest, right? But when something you thought was impossible turns out to be possible, you gotta ask yourself what else is possible. Right. Now, I did a poll on Twitter uh, about who liked Teams more or Slack. I, I thought it would be 80, candidly, I thought it would be 80% Slack, 20% mm-hmm. Teams. I was surprised there was about 45% Teams. How do you get those people to realize, in your mind at least, the, the sales pitch, that it's better to be on, uh, that it's better to be on Slack than Teams? You know, honestly, for our large enterprise customers, almost 100% of them are Microsoft customers. Of those, almost right. 100% of Office 365. And of those, almost all have teams. Um, and we just coexist alongside. And the, our success in, at the large, you know, the high end of the, of the um, market, it's like seven of the top 10 telcos in the world, five of the five big retailers in the U.S., the largest issue of credit cards or in financial services, healthcare, manufacturing. I mean, obviously media and technology, because that's you know, where, we, where we got started. People just use Slack and Teams uh, alongside one another in the same way that we at, at Slack, the company, use Slack and Zoom. 
they use Teams for voice and video calling, and they use Slack as their digital HQ. Now, if that's the case, though, when you add something like Huddles, you add something like Canvas, these are these are really powerful th- uh, forces. I knew Quip mm-hmm. from Brett Taylor. When you when you put the layer of these on, then maybe it's not as uh, homogenized. I mean, they're they're very different. Could these be difference makers for you? I think they will be. And, you know, it's funny, just looking at Salesforce, the company. So right. they, they use uh, Google Meet, right. a little bit of WebEx, Zoom. Um, <laughs> since uh, we turned huddles on internally, 34% of the meetings or calls are now on huddles. And the in, and how long, ago, how long did that take? This is, that took about six weeks or seven weeks, really? something like that. But the, here's the, the cool thing is the average huddle is 10 minutes long, whereas the, the video call is, is like a fixed unit well, we save, save minutes. It's going to be a half-hour Zoom call, and it's a half-hour Zoom call. Yeah, and, and you just do it now. Like We've we got to talk about this. I press the button. Um, it goes to exactly that group of people. Yeah. Everyone gets on the call. And now it's not like we have to wait until next Tuesday at 1130 to get this thing um, on the books. So it both moves it to a more immediate uh, cycle and also shortens the amount of time. So also more serendipitous and spontaneous conversations. Well, look, uh, for those of us who don't have it, when we hear it, we all wish we did, because we all know those flaws. We all know that the meeting goes on too long. We also know that there has to be someone who puts it together. And we also think it's bureaucracy. And you eliminate, like you did when you started, you eliminate the bureaucracy of work, which is something that marked it from day one. And I think that's why you guys are great partners. I want to thank you. That's Stuart Butterfield. He's the CEO and co-founder of Slack. And we're still calling that. We're not saying he's a vice president of Salesforce. But you could be end up being that too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up. Can ease of hiring drive this market higher? Kramer labors for the truth. Off the charts. Next. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Right now, everyone's terrified of stubbornly high inflation. And more important, the damage the Federal Reserve might have to inflict on the economy story that could 
controls the entire market. You know it. I know it, especially after yesterday's Fed meeting where j hit us with another 75 basis point rate hike and made it clear that he'll win this war by any means necessary. So tonight, I want to put this dilemma in a historical perspective. Everybody knows that persistently high inflation is awful for business long term. Everybody knows that when the Fed slams the brakes on the economy, the near-term earnings estimates need to come down, possibly dramatically. That's why the stock market has been so horrendous this year. But what exactly does it mean for the market at this point in the business cycle? I think the only way to understand this environment is to hop in the Wayback Machine with Mr. Peabody and see how similar situations like this one have played out. And that's why we're going off the charts with the help of Larry Williams. He's that legendary technician I talk about. He's also a market historian who's been the number one expert in the space since I was in grade school. Larry's written over a dozen books and created a host of his own proprietary technical indicators, which you can find by going to a really cool website of his called IReallyTrade.com. And what really matters, though, is that he's got a tremendous track record, especially over the last few years. Remember, he made that bold bottom call in April of 2020 when everybody everybody in the business was saying that we'd be in COVID lockdown endlessly. Larry told us the economy would start going back to normal by mid-May. He was absolutely right. Just a tremendous buying opportunity among many others that he's given us. So what does Williams think of the current inflation situation? He thinks we need to judge the current moment against the last few times we faced extreme inflationary pressures, the analogs, so to speak. It's been a very, very long time since we've had persistent mid to high single digit inflation. I happened briefly in the early 90s. I it happened briefly in the early 90s before Alan Greenspan's Federal Reserve cracked down. Before that, we had an extremely long, horrible bout of high inflation in the late 70s and early 80s, where then Fed chair uh, Paul Volcker had to wreck the economy in order to get things under control. And then going back even further, inflationary shock in 1973 to 1975, and that was fueled by the first big OPEC embargo. When you look at these three analogs, Williams has spotted patterns or cycles to these bouts of inflation. He thinks it's very illuminating to project that cycle onto the present moment and see what it might tell us about the future. I think this makes so much sense. So take a look at this. This is a current Fed sticky price consumer price index uh, in black, okay, as compared to the big burst of inflation in the late 70s and early 80s, and that's in red. Williams points out that the current trajectory of sticky price inflation has hugged this historical pattern incredibly closely. Isn't that incredible? Come on. You have to admit, that's almost a perfect correlation. When you measure the present versus the horrific inflation in the late 70s and early 80s, this pattern puts us roughly in the ni- into 1980. Back then, inflation soared before peaking out, and it did peak out, although it had some more spikes over the next couple of years. The peak was indeed in 1980. So if this pattern continues to hold, well, guess what? Williams thinks that inflation is headed lower. To me, that makes sense. Speaking of someone who lived through it, central bankers had no idea how to beat inflation in the 70s. They were totally at sea. Then Paul Volcker came in and Fed chief hit us, boom, with a series of ruthless rate hikes, much more ruthless than the Fed would have needed to be if they'd acted aggressively a few years earlier. Sound familiar? Today, unlike back then, the Fed knows exactly how to beat inflation. And Jay Powell has shown that he's willing to bring the pain. That means it should peak sooner. Next. Let's look at the same sticky price CPI number from today versus the early to mid-70s in red. Again, Williams points out that the trajectory of inflation over the past few years is very similar to what we had back then. Again, I'm talking about perfect correlation. It's almost eerie, isn't it? He says the current inflation action looks very similar to where we were in 1974, and 1974 was the peak. 
two peaks. After that, we got very we had a few years where inflation moderately uh, moderated substantially before again exploded in '79, which was uh, on the last chart I showed. Once again, Williams notes that inflation only tends to persist for so long before it burns out, despite what you hear about in the media. Although how we get there varies by time period. Finally, how about the last major bout of inflation we had in the U.S. back in the late 80s and the early 90s? Once again, we're comparing that period in red to the current moment in black. And sure enough, the cycle from 30 years ago, 30 odd years ago, seems surprisingly similar to what we're going through now. And look what happens. Williams thinks it looks a lot like where we were in 1990, right before inflation came back down with alacrity. Okay, let me give you one last chart. Really kind of incredible. It's a, this is, takes a look at the ProShares Inflation Expectations ETF. Yes, the RINF, R-I-N-F, RINF for all you home gamers. Williams points out that this was a good leading indicator for inflation on the way up. Caught it right. So it's important to recognize that this ETF has stopped going higher, definitively stopped going higher. In fact, Williams is such a believer in this thesis that he's actually shorting, shorting this, shorting the inflation expectation ETF, shorting the RINF. Here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Larry Williams, suggest that inflation could soon cool down substantially. Soon, if history's any guide. Honestly, it wouldn't surprise me. We don't give the Fed enough credit for slamming the brakes on the economy, and I think we'll soon start to see the impact of Jay Powell's decisive action. That's good news for the stock market long term, even, yes, indeed, if it hurts in the short term. Let's take questions. Let's go to Eric in Pennsylvania. Eric. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Thank you, Eric. Wanted to get your long-term outlook on Enphase Energy and see how you compare it to Generac, given the recent solar litigation against Generac. Okay, I think that what matters in Enphase is that this is probably, if you were to speak to President Biden and he were all interested in stocks, I know from previous to this he was not, this would be the stock that most correlates with his policies. So I think you can be long it. Uh, and actually buy it almost every time it comes down because of the consistency of what the president really wants to have happen in our economy. Let's go to Jacob in North Carolina. Jacob. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on your show. Third time caller. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for keep calling in. I know it's a tough market. We'll work it together. What's going on? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, my question was about Visa stock. Um, I mainly bought it for a trade, to be honest, because it was trading sort of the bottom of a channel it's been right. in for the better part of a year. Um, but my question was, do, if, it, if we're going into a global recession, do you think the increased fees they have will offset the decline in volume? No, or? no, I do not. And that's why I think that the price earnings multiple at 29 is way too high. And I don't think you should own this stock right here. By the way, MasterCard just broke 300. That was rather shocking. MasterCard has got even faster growth. And that one has no defense. Let's go to Armando in California. Armando. Booyah, Mr. Kramer, long-time viewer since Cudlow and Kramer. Wow. Dating me. What's up? Thank, thank heaven for makeup. Thank you. Yeah, my subject is CrowdStrike. I own Crowd since early 2020, and I sold some uh, with a decent profit. My question to you is, should I buy, add more to my position, or should I hold given the economy we're in? Well, and the, rate's I, going- I, the multiple here is 120 times uh, earnings. Uh, it, it, <laughs> that's very expensive. Uh, Palo Alto is much cheaper, and they're both great companies. So that's my uh, compare head-to-head. All right, look, if history's any guide, the charts suggest inflation could start cooling soon. No one thinks that. 
because of Powell's action. It might hurt stocks short term, like we saw today, but good for the market long term. And it could be happening quicker than we think. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with a company called Splunk. Could this beaten down data player be worth a second look? I've got the CEO. Then I'm cluing you in my takeaways from my time spent out west. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Cloud software stocks just keep rolling over. And you got to wonder if the better ones might be getting too cheap to just sell here. How about even be enticing? Take Splunk, the business analytics and cybersecurity play. This stock has been more than cut in half since late, last November to the point where it's now trading at its lowest level since 2017. But it's such a better company now. Some of this has to do with a lengthy business model transition, going all in on software as a service. They have to do that. And the latest quarter was noisy. Good headline numbers, but also lowered guidance for the metrics Wall Street cares about the most for cloud companies like annual recurring revenue. But we'll get in on that. Man, this stock's now down a quick 11% since we last spoke to them. And that was less than a month ago. And there have been some interesting developments in the interim. So let's take a close look with Gary Steele. He's the president and CEO of Splunk. For more about how this company's doing, Mr. Steele, welcome back in person. Money. It's great thank to be you. here, Jim. Thank you. It is great to see you. And it's great I, to do it in person. Thank you. And I've got to tell you, I've been, I know that you're, I'm the stock guy, you're the business person. But I, I just want to get a sense, you are a very good business person. Is your business losing value at the same pace that your, your stock is losing value? Absolutely not. So the one of the things that I've seen in all the customer meetings that I've done in my short tenure with Splunk is we're so mission critical. The security environment is incredibly challenging. Right. We're helping customers drive an improved security posture in this very uncertain geopolitical time. And in addition to that, we're helping organizations drive resilience in their applications, helping them ensure that those applications stay up and running. Those are some of the most important things going on in companies today. Now, are you using your cybersecurity background to be able to make it so that Splunk's got new customers to bring some people in? Or how about maybe using some uh, coalitions, some allies? We are definitely focused on cyber and really getting close to those buyers because we think there's tremendous opportunity there. And I think in particular, we're dealing in a tough world right now. Um, and, and I think all organizations are on high alert. And I think we all need to be thoughtful about what could happen next. And the great thing is Splunk is the underpinning of the security operations, helping them really understand what's happening and how do they remediate it. Well, I've been thinking uh, defense because of what's happening in Ukraine. And cybersecurity are two areas that the Fed cannot slow down, even if they wanted to. They can't slow the bad guys. No, and the bad guys continue to win, right? We, we see it every day where bad guys are, are winning against different kinds of organizations. And so one of the great things, again, that one can do is really help organizations have the visibility that they need to really understand what the heck's going on in their environment. But there are people who are great investors. And I've always felt that Helm and Friedman, tremendous investors. Now, they've come to you. Uh, the first thing you did was, I, I thought, I really applaud this, because they're so smart. You said you wanted them inside the tent. Now, what does that mean, and are they being helpful? 
Yes, absolutely. So I'm super excited to have the opportunity to work with the team from Hellman. Um, they're great investors. They entered the stock um, earlier in the year, and we've worked to get them inside the tent. What's that mean? We signed an NDA with them. So they get, they get inside information. But that also means they can't trade the stock, right. so they have a standstill. And they'll be voting with the company through a voting agreement. So these are really helpful things. And in addition, I get to take advantage of their great operating experience. And so they're basically an extended team that help us get, get stuff done. I'm it's great. Not, I'm going to ask a question that would be obvious in any other industry other than uh, Wall Street. Uh, why don't other people do that? Why didn't you just say, listen, you, you, look, go find someone else. I'm not your guy. What do you mean, Jeff? Well, why did you just say, I don't want you. I don't want you inside the tent. I want you outside the tent. I view them as an incredible partner to help us drive value for all shareholders. They're super smart. They're super sophisticated. And they have great operating experience. <laughs> and I'll, I'll use that help. Why not? Right. Because I, mean, I think we can, I think collectively we can drive great value for shareholders. I'm glad you say that because I, some people would say, well, I don't want anyone in. And yet I see people like these guys and say, wow, this could be terrific. They're so smart. And I don't have to pay them. They're happy no, to and, come and, in. You know, we've had Silver Lake in the company and we have a board right. member from Silver Lake and they're running some great projects on my behalf. I will take help every day exactly. because we can deliver great shareholder value as a result of those efforts. OK, so let's uh, talk about the uh, share repurchase. Uh, for so long, when I had a growth company in a portfolio, I didn't want share repurchase. But we are no longer in that kind of market. We have a market where your stock may be your very best investment. Are we there with Splunk? You know, we'll be thoughtful. We did some um, repurchases earlier uh, we'll be thoughtful about that, and we'll be thoughtful about how we use the cash on our balance sheet. We really want optionality. There's Obviously, I think there's going to be great opportunities over time from an M&A perspective. But how we think strategically about how we leverage our balance sheet, that, that's something that we'll spend a lot of time thinking about. How about hiring? I think that it's gotten a little bit easier. Now, it's getting easier. Right? It's getting now, easier. isn't that something? Yeah. And is that because... Uh, there are companies that can't make it because it's, they can't raise more money, or is it because people are uncertain and there have been layoffs? How come it is easier? I think there's a number of factors for us. I think one, people are now starting to see the power of Splunk again. So we, right. we have some advantageous brand opportunities, and we've seen a ton of boomerangs, meaning people who left Splunk want to come back. They want to be Splunkers again, which I'm super excited about. And I think the market, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And as a company that's growing fast, generating cash, I think Splunk's a great place to be. Well, it's interesting because it wasn't uncertain. There were people who just job out, and each person, they kept making more and more. The uncertainty makes it so you'd rather stay and develop within a company, I think. No, and it's, and, and it, it's on us to help individuals manage their career at Splunk, have them have great, fruitful careers where they grow and develop and do different things. Now, there are other companies that are in your area, and I know that I've always tried to figure out how Splunk can have the big base that it needs, how it can have the scale. But you have huge customers. We have very and large customers. a lot customers. of people don't understand. I mean, you have high, I mean, you have like major, major companies views you. Just give me a use case, Will. Yeah, so um, we have a large, I'll put them in the retail category. Okay. They're, they're an organization that ingests almost a petabyte a day. A petabyte of data. A okay, day. that was my next question. I was and that helps them Help get people what that is, because people, I read it and I said, I got to ask them what that is. So what it is, is all of the, 
all their systems and applications are delivering data that gets consumed into Splunk, where you can then do very sophisticated analytics. So you can find out, is there a threat actor in your environment? You use that data to also understand, is there something going on with that application, if there's an application failure? So the underpinning of their environment that drives resilience is the data that lives in Splunk. And it takes a lot of data to do that. And so that's one of the unique capabilities of Splunk, is at scale, we can deliver amazing results that are hard to achieve with other products. Okay, so how quick how quickly could someone put a query into that and have it come out in a, in a valuable, valuable form? Yeah, immediate. Immediate. Yeah, immediate. And what would it have been, say, uh, before Splunk was doing this? It wouldn't, even, days, po- it wouldn't have even been you, possible. You wouldn't have bothered to do it because That's right. it just wouldn't have worked. That's right. So I can't think of a business now that has any scale that, that, that doesn't need that. No, and I think it's particularly true in security where you want to keep all kinds of information. So think about things like access logs. People want to know, when did Jim log on? And was it really Jim who logged on or somebody else? I, I, look, the, we're in a tough moment because there are companies, as you said, your stock in, and your company have kind of diverged here. But that's what I found out here. Great companies diverging with stocks that aren't as meaningful as they used to be in terms of price. I want to thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. It's great to Gary Steele. He's president and CEO of Splunk and has made our viewers a ton of money. May have money's back in. Right. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. Edition of Lightning Round for this week's Mad Money. We laughed, we cried, we did not sleep. What a trip. The Lightning Round is where I take your calls. Round 5170, San Tucker. And then the Lightning Round is over. Are you ready? Ski, Dad, for the Lightning Round. I'm going to go to Ken in Ohio. Ken. Jimmy, I've been a follower since your trip. Take the money and run radio days, okay? Holy cow, you remember that? That's 25 years ago. I'm a current club member. Oh, thank you. You know we're doing our best every day. Do you like the morning meeting? Hey. Yeah, I listen to the morning meeting every day, but you've yes. been a little down on Medtronic, but my son works for a competitor and says they have innovative products. What do you think of Boston Scientific? Your son has got horse sense. Some of the products that are coming out that are obviating the need for uh, some very, uh, let's put it this way. I've worked uh, and seen doctors with their stuff. It is breakthrough. BSX is a much better company than Medtronic. Thought I'd never say that, but it absolutely is. Okay, now let's go to Bob in Florida. Bob. Uh, booyah, Dr. Kramer, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Thank you, Bob. Uh, What's going on? Uh, question about a stock. I've owned it for two years. I sold more than half of. I sold half of it when it more than doubled. Now it's uh, at a 52-week low, but it's still 80% over what I paid for it. But the dividend is six to over 6%. So I buy it back to get the dividend. It's Dow Inc. is the stock. No, don't buy it back. We're not going to reach for dividend. Dividend is not helping us right now. It is not stopping any stock from going down, whether it be, whether it be Verizon, whether it be ATT, whether it be Dow. I like the company very much. I like Jim Fiddley, but you do not need to buy more Dow. It's just not right. I need to go to Stephen in, in North Carolina. Stephen! Oh, yes, old Jim. Well, what's I'm up? A, so I'm a 29-year-old hybrid investor speaking your thoughts. My two-part question is, what is your outlook on Occidental Petroleum, and what do I need to do to get back on air with you? 
Well, um, let's see back where here you are. Uh, but, you know, Occidental is a very inexpensive stock, and I believe in the oils. You know, we're overweight in the oils for when it comes to uh, my travel trust, so I'm, I'm going to say you can stick with Occidental and welcome back to the air. I need to go to Josh in North Carolina. Josh. Kramer, my man. Hey, man. Hey, What's going on, Josh? To speak with you, brother. Hey, roughly a month and a half ago, SoFi. I purchased a considerable amount of it. Two days later, I walk in the door, mad money's on. You're talking SoFi. What had happened? Well, what happened? What? It's, at, it's at five bucks, but remember, the president did the, you know, gave you the moratorium and then, of course, the, uh, the break you got on student loans. But that should not be determined. It is not determined, and this stock is too cheap. And I am telling you uh, that when I look at it, that Anthony Noto, the CEO, is going to make you money if you buy that stock at $5.36. Now I'm going to Bernie in West Virginia. Bernie! Hello, Jim. A great big mountaineer. Booyah to you this evening from Morgantown, wild, wonderful West Virginia. Great gorgeous there. What's happening? Just to the point, Jim, ET, Energy Transfer. Well, my old boss in, re- in research, Lee Cooperman, said the other day that he thinks energy transfer is good. He likes Kelsey Warren. I like pipelines and that. Ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, NVIDIA has a history of reinvention. So why does it look like a falling knife? Kramer digs deep for answers. Next. Jim Kramer, the diehard of the dollar. Hey, Jimmy, love the show. My five-year-old grandson loves to watch your show. I have to thank you for making us money when it's there to be made. Our world is a better place with you in it. Stock price equals E times M, the earnings times the multiple. That's how Wall Streeters do the arithmetic that lets them decide what to pay for a stock. In a solve like this one, the equation determines everything. The multiple falls first, then the earnings come down later. Lots of people ask me, how do you come up with a target for where a stock can go? I always say this as simple as multiplication. First, I try to figure out what a company can earn. That's the E. And then I try to figure out how much I'd be willing to pay for the multiple, pay for that E. That's called the multiple or the M. Now, this isn't as easy as it sounds. Typically, the company forecasts future earnings. So figure out the E part of the equations. It isn't that difficult in a normal economy. As for the multiple, Wall Street pays more for companies with consistent growth that will keep putting up the same numbers, even in a slowdown. We call those secular growth stories. But what about the cyclicals, the boom and bust companies where the earnings tend to rise and fall with the rest of the economy or some other cycle? Those tend to fall apart when the Fed starts hitting the brakes on the economy like it's doing now. First, the earnings hang in there, but people start paying a lower multiple for them because they suspect the estimates will have to come down. Then there's a sharp fall off in earnings, and the stocks have another leg down. And that's what's playing out right now on your screen. When recessions come, the earnings for these cycles can be cut in half or worse. Hence, the mad dash out the door right now as investors try to get out ahead of the slowdown. Let me give you an example. We've had Cleveland Cliffs on the show several times, classic steel company. When the economy was expanding, their earnings soared. And they soared so rapidly that the estimates couldn't even keep up. 
At the same time, Wall Street was willing to pay more for those earnings, a higher multiple M, because money managers love growth. And there didn't seem to be anything that could slow that one down. But at a certain point, big money managers get concerned that the economy is growing too fast. Not cliffs, but the economy. And the Fed will take action to slow things down. And that's when the multiple starts to shrink, even as the earnings still look strong. The M falls first because the M is the determines the price of the stocks, where it's going to settle, how low it's going to go. Process drives people crazy. They can't understand why their stock is going down when the underlying company is making so much money. But the multiple is all about forecasting the future. Now, when the Fed's raising interest rates like mad as they are, the actual earnings, not just the multiple, but the earnings come down. And that's what causes the second leg that we're experiencing. The M falls first, then the E follows. So Cleveland Cliffs went from making no money in 2020 to making five bucks per share in 2021. People were willing to pay about seven times earnings. Stock went to 34. Then as Wall Street started worrying about a Fed mandated slowdown, investors were willing to pay less and less for those same earnings until the stock dropped to around $20 in June, either as the estimates stayed the same. Of course, the estimates were wrong. They were too high. And eventually, they started coming down, too. And that's taking Cleveland Cliffs down to $14 as of today. When the multiple collapsed earlier in the year, it was a sign the future was about to get ugly. And now that ugly future has arrived in the form of lower earnings numbers. I don't know where Cliffs is going to stop. Everyone accepts that the risk, it's part of what, you know, it's a steel company, for heaven's sake. But how about to say the, uh, the semiconductors? Now, normally these are growth stocks, often as steady as Colgate or General Mills, except for they grow much faster and they can have a dramatically higher price earnings multiples. Right now, though, the Fed's constricting the whole economy and the uses for semiconductors are being choked. That's how something like NVIDIA keeps rolling over. First, the multiple shrank. Now the earnings are shrinking. We are the one for the charitable trust. And as you might have heard in this morning's meeting that we do at 1020, I believe NVIDIA is still too pricey here at just over 35 times earnings. I think the earnings projections for more than $4 per share could be in jeopardy. Too high because of too much inventory of what are known as cards, older cards. Right now, the stock has become a falling knife because of this process. I'm not sure where it stops because I don't know how much NVIDIA will ultimately end up earning. And I don't know what to pay for those earnings. Until we get more clarity, I think it can keep going lower. So why hold something like NVIDIA then? Why not get rid of it? Because I believe in the business and I believe in the management. NVIDIA has a history of reinvention. And I think it can only make its earnings go much higher. When things turn, it'll start getting a much higher multiple, too. We just don't know when that turn will happen, which is why I think it's a hold for the moment. I wouldn't be a buyer here. The P.E. is still too high. But at the same time, I think we're getting to the point where it is indeed too late to sell. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I'm trying to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.